This sermon was recorded at the Midtown Congregation of Redeemer Fellowship, a church that exists to cultivate communities of transformed disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of the city. For more information, visit RedeemerKansasCity.org. Today's scripture reading is from the book of 2 Peter, 2nd chapter, verses 10b through the end of the chapter, verse 22, and it's in page on page 1019 of your pew Bible. Again, that's 2 Peter 2, 10b through 22. For those who, have able, who are able, please stand for the reading of God's word. Bold and willful, they do not tremble, as they blaspheme the glorious ones, whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming against matters which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. Let's pray. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name on uh, account of his glorious work and his merit alone. God, this morning, I ask that you would come and speak to us in and through your word. God, would you strengthen us by the power of your Holy Spirit? Strengthen us this morning that we would stand firm in your truth, that we wouldn't be tossed to and fro, that we would not be given over to deception or delusion. God, that we would stand firm in the power of your truth. God, this morning, I want to ask, even in a very particular way, that you would strengthen Even on Father's Day, I ask that you would strengthen the fathers in this spiritual family, both natural fathers over households and spiritual fathers in our midst. Would you strengthen them to stand firm in your truth as protectors, as keepers, as those that watch over and guard and keep and preserve that which is true and good and right. I ask for a particular grace to be given this morning. 
would you come and enlighten the eyes of our understanding to see Jesus in his name. Amen. Amen. So this is our second week in second Peter chapter two, which is a pretty heavy chapter, a pretty terrifying chapter, a pretty sobering chapter. And where I want to begin is in the same place that I did last week is framing up our time as we come to the close of this chapter uh, with a vision for and an exhortation to us of becoming a people that delight in the truth of God, in the, in the truth of God's word, in the truth that he has revealed about himself and his desires and his will and his ways. I want to put on the horizon for us a vision to be a people and an exhortation to be a people that delight and love the truth of God. I have here on the top of your notes uh, a, a passage from Psalm 119. In the way of your testimonies, the psalmist says, I delight more than all riches. Because of that, I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes and I will not forget your word. Now, the reason I want to start here again is because Peter's purpose all through this little letter is to remind believers of the truth. He wants to tell believers things they already know. He said that again and again, both in chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, and then he's going to bookend it in uh, chapter 3, verse 1. He tells them, the very reason I'm writing to you is to tell you things you already know. I'm not coming up with some new thing to uh, bring to you. I'm telling things that you should know and be aware of. However, what you need in relation to that truth is to be stirred up to hold fast to it and to pursue holiness in a spirit of obedience because of it. Because what had happened in Peter's day is as the church was growing and being established, false teachers had found their way into the midst of the family of God. And they were beginning to promote and uh, tolerate false doctrines and secretly and subtly bring them in. And there was a threat to the church to be moved away from the true and one foundation of Christ Jesus. So Peter is reminding them and stirring them up and showing them the way to respond to the Lord in truth. Look at letter A here. One of the most essential needs that we do have in the body of Christ in our present moment. I think we find ourselves in a very similar place to where Peter, as he was writing this letter, we find ourselves in a similar place, is to become a people that delight in God's truth. Now, I, I said this last week, it's, it's kind of tongue-in-cheek, but when I talk about delighting in God's truth, I don't just mean that you have good quiet times or you like to take the scripture and like uh, write it in fancy script and put it in a frame and stick it on your wall or knit it on a pillow or something like that. I, I, all those things are beautiful and good. Do those things. But when I say delighting in the truth of God's word, to delight in God's word means that we stand with Jesus where he is standing, no matter what the cost is. That we stand in agreement with who he is, who he's revealed himself to be, what he's revealed his will to be, and in the midst of our world, we are willing to take a stand to place ourselves right where he is, no matter what it costs us, no matter where it puts us in the eyes of society, no matter whether it brings us reproach or reviling or uh, ostracizing, no matter what it costs us, we take a stand with him and his ways because we see them as the only way that leads to life and wholeness and flourishing. That's what it means to delight in the truth of God. It means to stand with him in truth. And we see, even in our own day, the, that, that what it means to stand with God in truth or to delight in his word is 
costly and unpopular, right? There is a growing stigma that is uh, surrounding holding on to the precepts of God, his word, his ways in our moment, and to stand to them and hold to them unapologetically without wavering carries a real stigma and reproach. Let her see, like in Peter's day, we do live in a moment where false teaching is increasing within the church, right? The church, uh, we've outlined this at several places. The church is always fighting uh, for, for its, its stability and to hold fast to the head, which is Christ Jesus, on one of two fronts, right? Either the front of persecution and suffering and trial or the front of deception and false teaching. And like in Peter's day, I think we find ourselves in a season where there is false teaching creeping up even from within the walls of the church that we have to stand firm and hold to the ways of Jesus. There's a spirit of confusion and uncertainty that marks many believers today because of the presence of false teaching. Now, I, there was a lot of resonance when I said this last, last week. But there is a confusion that surrounds so much of what is being promoted as truth and promoted as uh, the way of Jesus in our world. And I, I, I want to be really clear. That is happening because there are shepherds and teachers in God's flock that have abandoned fidelity to the word of God. There are times, this is sobering. This is really, really sobering. There are times where what is being promoted among the body of Christ by way of teaching, by way of the message that's being proclaimed sounds more like the serpent than it sounds like the shepherd. And we have to be aware of that. And we have to humbly look at what the truth of God's word declares and stand with him where he is. Letter D, Paul highlighted that the church would face seasons of deception. And they would come because people fail to receive the love of the truth. And instead, they prop up for themselves teachers who tickle their ears by telling them what they already wanted to hear. Look at these two verses here. Second Thessalonians chapter two, Paul says, with wicked deception, this comes into the church for those who are perishing. Why does this happen? Why are there seasons of, of turning away from the truth of God, uh, even among uh, those who profess to follow him? It's because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sent them a strong delusion that they would believe what is false. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, he talks of a time coming when people would no longer endure sound teaching. They wouldn't hold on to it. They wouldn't stand with it. Why? Because they have itching ears. And because of that, they accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Turning away from listening to the truth and wandering off into myth. So we see this sobering portrait of what's happening in Peter's day. I think it's also happening in ours. But we've also tried to talk about the reality that Peter's primary strategy isn't to uh, talk about primarily all of the bad things that are happening around in the culture, right? What he wants to do is build up and strengthen the church, and he does that, chapter one, by reminding of them, them of the truth and telling them to walk in holiness. We looked at that several weeks ago. But what he does in chapter two, which is as much strengthening the church, is exposing the characteristics of false teachers and teaching and the effects that it has in the midst of the people of God. So we're going to jump right into this. Take your Bibles out if you put them away. Open to Second Peter 2. We're going to kind of move our way through the text. I want you to look at it, see it in your own Bible. 
Essentially, what we're going to do is just look at two realities. There's the rest of 2 Peter 2. We're going to walk through two large realities of what Peter's doing in this chapter. The first thing we're going to look at is Peter outlines the characteristics of false teachers and their teaching. That's verses 10b all the way down to verse 19. He's going to lay out, hey, here are characteristics of false teachers and their teaching. And then the last verses of the chapter are this sobering and terrifying uh, look at what is going to happen to those who follow their deception. It's a remarkably sobering warning of what happens for those who follow in the way of false teaching. So look at Roman numeral two. After establishing the certainty that false teachers will be present among them, that's verses one to three in chapter two. And then the certainty that there is a come, in fact, a coming judgment that will face those who promote such teachings, verses four to the first part of verse 10. Peter moves on to highlight several characteristics of false teachers and their teaching. Now, letter B, it's important to understand that Peter doesn't spend a lot of time talking about the content of the false teaching. Now, have you ever read this and found it to be interesting? I know I find it to be interesting. When I read this, I wonder why Peter doesn't do one of two things. This is what I think we would like for him to have done, right? Either he identifies the content of the false teaching, right? Hey, this is what they're teaching, so watch out for it. And this is the truth that counteracts it. We would like that, but he doesn't do it. Or we would like him to name the false teacher, right? We really like that. Stand up and just tell me who we're talking about here. Watch out for John as he comes into your midst. Sorry if your name is John. Watch out for this guy. Uh, Rufus is sowing deception among you. He doesn't do it. Have you ever wondered why? Have you ever asked yourself why? Why, when talking about false teaching, does Peter outline characteristics not content, and not individuals. Look with me at the top of page two. I think the reason that Peter doesn't simply tell them what the false teaching is, is a remarkably wise gift to us in how the Spirit chose to inspire the Holy Scriptures. This demonstrates for us and helps us to stand in the reality that the content of false teaching will continually change throughout the history of the church. Hey, here's one thing that we have to know, and it's held up throughout the course of church history. Every time a false teaching emerges, right, the church will wrestle with it, it finds its way in, it actually leads many astray for a time, People get caught up in it. They can't see it for what it is right away because it comes in subtly. It comes in craftily. It sounds really nice. And then it moves people away. And then what God begins to do is breathe upon his word. And he, gets, he begins to call people to stand for the truth of what he has spoken. And then they stand up and they go, that's false. We're going to stand here. And then the crafty serpent just redirects his energy, right? The content changes, right? One time it's, is Jesus really God? That's the early church. Is Jesus really God from eternity? Well, they stand up, they fight about it, they, they grapple over it, they come to the reality of what the truth says, and then all of a sudden it switches a little bit. It moves to something else. And so I think the wisdom of the Holy Spirit as he inspired Peter to write this wanted us to understand the characteristics of false teaching so that whenever it props up, we go, hey, hey, this smells familiar. This seems familiar to me. 
I know where this is going. He wants to help us be stable by looking for characteristics, not by just right out answering what the content was or calling out the people. Letter D, we can see that this demonstrates that false teaching will always possess similar characteristics. When seeking to understand false teaching, we do not primarily give our attention to studying the particular counterfeits. Rather, we spend time seeking to understand the reality of God's truth and the elements that characterize a spirit of false teaching. I was talking with my boys this week and telling them it's a really well-known, you know, preachers use it all the time, but like when people are going to study uh, fraudulent currencies, right? They want to go in and be somebody that can discern and understand counterfeit money. You don't uh, study all the counterfeits. Why? Because thieves are crafty, right? The second you realize, oh, you counterfeit it that way, they change it and counterfeit it a different way. What do you do? You spend all of your time studying the real thing all of your time studying the real thing. So every single time you see something that's counterfeit, you go, that's not it. That's not it. That's not it. And the same thing goes for the doctrine of the church, right? We spend the majority of our time studying the reality of what the scripture lays out and the characteristics of false teaching, not necessarily the particulars. Okay, this helps us understand, although the content of false teaching in our day will be very different than Peter's day, or even than the early church, it will always have a similar set of defining characteristics. So I want to give you three. I think Peter gives us three characteristics of false teachers and their teaching that we see in the text here. The first is that there is an element of slanderous and blasphemous judgment. These are verses 10 and 11. Read this here. Peter says, these teachers are bold. The word is presumptuous. They are presumptuous in how they talk. They think they know everything. They think they have all the answers and they stand up and they talk about things that Peter's gonna say just just in a second, they are completely ignorant of. They are bold and they are willful, they're hard-headed, and they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Then he goes on, whereas angels, though greater in might and power, don't pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. Okay, so there's some debate in how to understand the meaning of this text, right? There's a significant debate about the interpretation. There's an interpretation, an interpretive question related to two groups that Peter introduces into these texts. The first is, what does Peter mean by the glorious ones, right? Like they're blaspheming the glorious ones, right? Who, Who are these glorious ones? Some believe these to be angels, right? Whether wicked or good, or some others interpret this as like dignitaries, either leaders in the church or uh, civil authorities. I, I think from the context, it's best to believe that the glorious ones are fallen, wicked angels, right? So uh, I, I read a commentary uh, just this week where he was like, as much as I would like as a church leader to be called a glorious one, I do not believe that that is what Peter is saying here. And I agree. Uh, I don't think he's talking about church leaders here. I think he's talking about angelic beings. But if you look from context, he separates them from angels, right? So he says, look at, look at verse 10. Let your eyes look at it. They blaspheme glorious ones. Then right after, he gives a second category of being, whereas angels do something else, right? So these false teachers are blaspheming or speaking slanderous judgment against fallen angels. And then he's going to say, but the, the holy angels don't even relate to them in that way. So the glorious ones is the first 
sticky issue, but I think it is most likely fallen angels here. Look at number three. The second sticky issue or the group of people is Peter uses this word them in verse 11. And then it's, but who is the them, right? Look at verse 11. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them. So is the them the false teachers or is the them the evil angels, right? That's the big question. Is it the glorious ones or is it the false teachers? And again, I think from context, he's speaking of the angels don't even pronounce judgment against the fallen angels in the presence of God. So look at number four here. A similar passage in Jude helps us shine interpretive light on the shape of Peter's argument. And unfortunately, I won't be able to get into what's actually going on in this passage because it's a, it's a doozy. Jude 8, these people, he's talking about false teachers as well, blaspheme, blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, that's an interesting story, did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said rather, the Lord rebuke you. So in light of this, I think the meaning of Peter's warning demonstrates that the false teachers despise the order of God's creation and they don't have any fear or reverence or trembling in standing up and pronouncing a condemning or blasphemous judgment about things that they are completely ignorant or unaware or unable to accomplish. However, what he's saying is the angels in heaven don't even do that. Okay, so this is what's going on. Somehow, and I don't, I don't know the full extent of it, but the context seems to invite us to believe that the false teachers are standing up and pronouncing slanderous, blasphemous judgment on these fallen angels. Right? They're, they're rising up and they're taking into their own uh, uh, way of making sense of things that I'm going to pronounce a condemning judgment in this spot. But what are they doing? They're taking the place of God. Okay, so they're standing up and they are acting like their judgment is the judgment. And Peter says it's blasphemous and slanderous. Okay, so now we got to do a little work to talk about what does this look like in our day, right? Because you don't hear anybody in the church standing up and pronouncing judgment on the fallen angels, right? Maybe you do if you're in an interesting circle. (laughs) That's your YouTube feed. (laughs) So how do we apply this in our day? Look at the top of page three. So few in our day pronounce judgment on demonic powers. Rather, what we see in our day, or in that day, is the teachers did not tremble when pronouncing God's judgment upon those that they deemed to have sinned, when the angels who served in God's presence would not even do that, right? So these angels have sinned, they're standing up and pronouncing judgment, But what they don't recognize is these glorious, beautiful, holy angels who actually see things clearer than they do and have more power to do something about it than they do. They won't even pronounce that kind of judgment because judgment belongs to the Lord. That's the big key that you have to see here. So in a similar manner, I think we can take this idea, this characteristic and apply it in our day and age by looking and going, there are many teachers who expend a great deal of energy seeking to expose and outline judgment against those they deem worthy to, to experience such judgment. In our day, this looks and sounds like, in my opinion, teachers that have no problem getting up and pronouncing judgment on all these other people around them. It's really common, really well 
uh, accepted and known in the body of Christ. However, the pattern of scripture is clear of how we are to deal with judgment in the body of Christ, right? Jesus gives us the process of how we deal with people that we deem have sinned, either against us or against others, right? We're to walk through a biblical process by which to go about that. And I love in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul actually says, hey, there's times when you guys are at odds with one another and you're taking each other into the court of law. Now, today we're not taking each other into the court of law. We're taking each other into the court of public opinion on Twitter and Instagram and whatever the other platforms we get on. And Paul says, look at this here. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not suffer wrong? Why not be defrauded? But in doing so, you defraud and do wrong, even to your own brothers. Now, I think there is a willingness. Look at number nine here. A great deal of teaching in the body of Christ today that I believe is tolerant and permissive of what the Bible would call slanderous behavior. Let me define slander for you. Slander is the intentional uncovering of a wrong to someone that has no ability to bring about redemption in the situation outside of the process that God has given. Now, if that is a sin that has been done inside the church that um, is you know, we, anger related or uh, things where there's a fracturing of relationship, the process of Matthew 18 lays that out. Now, if it is criminal in nature, God has given the societal civil government to bring as the process by which to bring restoration, right? So there's processes in place, but it is any uncovering of an offense to someone that cannot bring restoration in that situation. Now, that, what I just said, is actually regularly told to people, do not listen to that. But that's what God's word tells us, okay? So that is what the word of God has given to us, and we want to be people that stand with Jesus where he stands how he brings us forward there. The form of teaching should be disregarded as we seek to walk in obedience to God's word. Okay, so letter H. The first one, we see this slanderous, blasphemous judgment. The second characteristic that Peter gives is there is an indulgent or essential behavior, right? The second characteristic of false teaching and their teachers has to do with a desire to promote indulgence and sensual behavior both permitting it for themselves and promoting it among their followers. Look at verse 13 here. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. Hey, the point that Peter's getting at here is they are taking things that normally are done in the hiddenness and the darkness of night because there should be a level of shame related to them, like healthy shame. Healthy, this is not right, and so we do it in places that are meant to be hidden. Now, that's not good, but the the reality of healthy shame tends to keep them in hidden places. And he goes, they are brazenly casting off restraint and reveling in the daytime in these endeavors. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes that are full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. Forsaking the right way, they go astray, following in the way of Balaam. So Peter speaks now of a self-fulfilling posture among the false teachers that did not submit their passions, the passions of their flesh, to Jesus in a spirit of obedience. So here he shows one of the marks of false teaching is a promotion of a self-indulgent worldview that casts off the clear teaching of the scripture as like oppressive, archaic, unloving, 
judgmental, legalistic, whatever word you want to put there, in order to justify patterns of sin and unrighteousness. So the false teachers, if we remember from last week, are coming in saying, hey, God isn't going to judge. There's no judgment on the horizon. Because of that, do whatever you want. Cast off restraint. Come and indulge in the passions of the flesh and revel in them. Don't say no to anything. Any desire, any passion, any lust that you have, go after it. The primary way, look at number two here that indulgent and sensual teaching finds its way into the church and always has is in the area of sexuality. The Bible is unapologetic that our sexuality, including our genderedness, is a stewardship that God gave to us. That's in the very fabric of the created order, that God gave humans genderedness and sexuality as a stewardship to be brought up and ordered under his good and right way. The Bible teaches that human sexuality is to be expressed exclusively in the lifelong covenant of marriage between one man and one woman, right? So these teachers were perverting that teaching, perverting that reality, and they were not just permissible of these realities, they were promoting them, right? They didn't just like permit them to happen and turn the other way. They are standing up and championing ways that are outside of God's word uh, that he has clearly defined of how we are to submit and order our internal passions up under his ways and his lordship. And they're promoting a different way. One of the markers, look at number three, that I think is important for our current moment is Peter's statement that the eyes of the false teachers are full of adultery rather than having the pure eyes that refuse to look upon worthless things. And I put there for you two, two scriptures that give a contrast and a biblical vision for our eyes. Job 31.1, Job says, I made a covenant with my eyes that I would not look upon a woman with lust. I made a covenant with my eyes that I would not use my eyes for the purpose of adultery and lust. And then Psalm 101, verses two and three, the psalmist declares that in in the secret of my house, I walk with integrity before the Lord. And I don't even in that place put a worthless thing into my sight because my eyes matter even when no one is watching. God is watching and what I give my eyes to matters for my soul. It matters for my obedience to the Lord. So these teachers let their eyes be full of adultery and they promote this and entice others to walk in the way. Now, here's a little side note that I just want to, I want to commend us to or exhort us to. In a moment where pornography is absolutely prolific, we live in a moment where pornography is easier to attain than it's ever been at any moment of human history, ever. That it exists and that you can get it in the secrecy of your home, in the privacy of where you are, and no one could ever know, there, it is unprecedented. I want to call us as a spiritual family to have an unapologetic stance to live with the purity of eye as we seek to live in accordance with God's truth, that we make covenants before God and one another to not put that stuff in our eyes, to not walk in that way. And there is grace for those who have stumbled and who stand up, repent for it, call it sin, receive the grace of God and stand forth to walk into a a way of seeking to walk in holiness. And that can happen again and again and again, but there is a posture of seeking to wage war and to walk in a realm of purity in our eyes and our thoughts and our hearts before the Lord. I want us to be that kind of people. 
I want us to go, hey, if false teachers let there be an eye full of adultery, we are going to be a people with an eye that is full of light, set on one thing and one thing alone, which is the glory of God in the face of Jesus. Look at number four. I think another profound contemporary expression of the indulgent and sensual teaching is what I would call the false gospel of self-actualization or fulfillment. I think there's a movement in the church that many believe, many believe the lie that the problem with all of humanity is something that exists outside of me, right? Like there's some latent, true, good, inner self that exists inside of me. And the problem with humanity is that everything outside has been trying to press that down and keep it from actualizing for all of my life. And that's a lie. Um, I, I, I'm thinking of G.K. Chesterton in, in this moment. There's the famous story of one of the papers uh, enlisting opinions into the paper. Uh, what is the problem with humanity? And G.K. Chesterton writes a opinion piece back to him and he says, dear sir, it's me. The Bible does not teach us that the problem is out there. The Bible teaches us that the problem is in here. And a teacher that again and again and again turns your eyes away from the reality of sin and the need for a savior is false teaching, right? That is false teaching that says, hey, what we have to do is get these things outside of us taken care of so that we can, whatever good is inside of us, that it can mature and come forth and realize itself. That is false, utterly false. It's another gospel uh, that is outside the way that the scripture has revealed the truth of Christ. All right, look at the top of page four. The last characteristic that Peter gives is that these false teachers present one appearance, but the reality is far different than what they present, right? There's this hollow external that the internal reality is completely separate from. Look at verse 17. These teachers are waterless springs. They tell you, hey, this is where you can come and find life. And when you go and try to drink from their cistern, it's empty. It's completely empty. They're mists that are driven by a storm. And the image here is like in the desert, if there was a mist that was going to come and bring rain, but then got blown away by a heavy wind, right? And didn't actually provide what, it was, what, what you thought it was going to. They speak loud boasts of folly, enticed by sensual passions, those uh, of the flesh, those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise freedom, but they themselves are slaves. The two images that Peter used are intended to communicate the same reality. These false teachers make promises, but are completely inept and unable to provide the things they promise. This concludes with the specific way that Peter highlights that they offer freedom to those who will listen to their teaching. Likely this, in the context, it is a sensual freedom with a view of living free from judgment. However, what the false teachers don't understand is that they themselves are in fact slaved to their pass passions, enslaved to their passions. Peter understands that humans are designed to live with allegiance, ordered to something outside of us. And we give ourselves over to that thing, we become slaves to it. Whether the Lord Jesus in righteousness or sin and wickedness. Now Jesus declares, look at number four, that a teaching ministry will be known by its fruit. This isn't simply speaking of numbers or apparent success. This is the troubling reality that we saw last week. Peter said earlier that many follow in the way of false teachers. 
So don't look at numbers. Don't look at even like people feeling like they're content for a minute. Uh, like that they're, they're finding real life there. Don't look at that. Look at the internal realities that are being cultivated, both in the teachers and those promoting, promoted by their teaching. Number five, over, over time, a teacher's life will be evaluated by the presence and the promotion of the Beatitudes and the fruits of the Spirit in their life and the lives of those who follow them. So what Peter's saying is, hey, there are people who will stand up and tell you to follow in the way that they're promoting and you will be healed or you will be free or you will be uh, liberated. But they are actually themselves enslaved and they are putting further bondage upon those that hear them and listen to them. In our day, many people offer a way of healing that abandons the way that Jesus has outlined leading to the way of life. Those that promise a wholeness or restoration might sound nice or good, but those that offer uh, these teachings are often bound in bitterness and anger, offering a poison to their hearers that will not bring healing, but will only lead to greater bitterness, strife, and anxiety. So Peter says, watch for these characteristics. Hey, spend some time with your Bible open and your heart attuned to the things of God and go, does this teaching embody these characteristics? Is it quick to pronounce judgment? Is it quick to promote judgment about things that it might be actually ignorant about? Or are they taking the place of God and pronouncing judgment before the time, right? Trying to get everybody else to see the problem with this ministry or this ministry or this person or that person and expose it and bring it to judgment. Or are they standing back and letting God be the judge, right? That's one. Are they promoting a posture of self-indulgence and sensuality? Whether it's related to the biblical vision of sexuality, genderedness, marriage, are they promoting that or are they, are they uh, despising it? Which one is being offered? Are they offering a, a message, a false gospel that says, hey, I just have to actualize myself. I have to promote what's inside. I have to realize the deepest truth of my true self. Or are they calling me to follow in the way of the cross, to come and die as I follow the Savior who laid down his life that I might be joined to him? Are they, the last thing, false in their appearance? Meaning, are they promoting a way of healing or wholeness or freedom, but they themselves are actually in bondage? in bitterness, in anger, laid up in those realities. Peter closes our time out with an absolutely tragic warning in the last several verses. This is a really, really sober warning where he says the false teachers and those that follow in their way, essentially, what he's saying is, listen, people of God, it's the same as the whole part of uh, book of Hebrews. Hey, today, if you hear the voice of God, don't harden your heart. Don't harden your heart. Don't turn away from the ways of the Lord. Don't let a spirit of unbelief keep you from pressing towards what is truth. And he says, because those that came out of the world and for a moment, new righteousness, new, uh, knew the way of righteousness, it says in verse 21, if they turn back and return to a former way of living in the world, if they run back into the sin and the darkness and depravity, it would be better for them to have never known. That is a terrifying judgment. It is a terrifying warning. And 
Look at letter B here. I don't want us to get caught up in the like, is Peter saying that somebody can lose their salvation or not lose their salvation? What Peter is doing is giving a real, real, stern, clear warning for those who are called of Jesus to not harden their heart through unbelief or sin. He is exhorting us. Hey, hear God's word. Remember God's truth. Let it stir you up in your affections again today. Let your hearts be stirred up to say, I want to be somebody that delights in the truth. I want to be somebody that delights in the truth. Oh God, I know my own propensities and proclivities towards deception, towards darkness, towards dullness, towards apathy, towards lethargy, towards drawing back. God, I know my own abilities to be uh, tossed to and fro because my emotions are unstable and they get moved around. Oh God, today, help me to keep a soft heart before you. That when your word comes into my ears, that my heart delights in it, that it treasures it, that I, that I come alive, that more than riches, as we saw at the beginning, as, as, as uh, the psalmist says, more than riches, more than the pleasures of this world, more than my own sensual desires and passions, when I hear your ways, my hearts rejoice in your testimonies. They rejoice in your commandments. They rejoice in your law. Ask the Lord for that today. That's the warning. Don't let today go by and just think we got it. Yeah, I already know that. I already know that. Yeah, that's a good message. That's a good truth. Thanks, Peter, for telling us the characteristics. Now I can write them down and have them for later. Today, we go, oh God, let us love your truth. Let us love your truth. Let us lay hold of your truth. Even like Peter says, let's just end here. Would you all stand with me? Even as Peter says, living and holy God, would you make us a people that delight in your truth? Just across the room, everybody before the face of God, just present yourself to him and ask him for a soft heart right now. God, would you soften my heart to the reality of your word? God, would you let me submit to your ways? God, I don't want to be like one who loves to hear a message that would in, let me indulge my own desires and despises authority. God, I want, to, I want to receive your desires, not my desires. I want to receive your ways, not my ways. And I want to humbly come up under the way of truth. God, would you make us a family that delights in your truth. God, that we love your precepts more than we love the riches of this world, the cares of this life, the accolades that come from, from uh, success and notoriety. God, we want your way. We want it. So would you come and speak it to us? Would you strengthen us in it? God, I ask in this room, even this morning, God, for people who find themselves day in and day out in a place where they feel um, like they're getting pressed on, pressed on to cower or to draw back, either in a spirit of shame or a spirit of fear. God, I just ask for strength right now. Would you put strength into the hearts and the minds and the souls of every man and woman in this sanctuary, in our church, God. Would you embolden us by the power of the Holy Spirit? 
Would you enable us by the power of your Holy Spirit? God, we just, we say that your ways are good. Your ways are right. We long for the judgments of the Lord. We long for the evaluations of the Lord. We turn away from the ways of this world. God, would you rid us, rid me, rid our entire spiritual family from any place that bears the characteristics of false teaching. God, a spirit of judgment, would you just purge it from our midst right now? God, a spirit of judgmentalism, would you just purge it from our, our, our midst? We receive the love of God that covers over. We receive the hope that looks for a day when you will make all things right. And so we say we don't have to. We don't have to be the one that gives our opinion or promotes what we think is right and wrong in these situations. We just submit them to you. God, we don't want to presume that we know best. Would you just purge it from our midst? God, I ask that you would purge from our midst a spirit of self-indulgence or sensuality. God, I ask in places where we are bound up bound up in the lusts of the flesh or the lusts of the eyes. Holy Spirit, come and purge us. Come and cleanse us. Come and bring a spirit of repentance into this place. God, would you cause your way to be delighted in? God, we say yes to your way. We say yes to your way. We're going to do something just a little bit different. Before we come to communion, we're going to come to communion in just a second. Um, hey, if you're in the room and you are experiencing just a little bit, like if you're going, I need strength to stand right where I'm at. Like in this season, whether it's in my vocation, whether it's in relationships that you have with family or uh, friends or people around as we find ourselves in uh, cultural waters that are becoming increasingly choppy. They're becoming increasing, increasingly like tossing us to and fro. And you're going, I feel the confusion or I feel the fear or the, the shame or the, the, the tendency to want to draw back. I just want to really quickly respond to the Lord. If you, if you feel that and you're, you're going, I want the Lord to strengthen me in a new way, in a fresh way, would you just raise your hand? Would you raise your hand? And I'm going to have people around you, around you. Let's just turn and like lay hands on people and let's ask the Lord. If you see somebody with their hand raised, just move around the sanctuary. You can actually move your body. It's okay. We're not doing it yet. We can move our bodies. Here we go. Move our bodies, lay hands on people. We're going to ask the Lord for an infilling of his grace, his strength, his power, his life. God, so I do ask all across this room, would you just fill us, fill us afresh with the grace of the Holy Spirit? the power of the Holy Spirit. God, I ask for an infilling of might. God, that you would cause the truth to abound in our midst. God, I just ask for a spirit of courage, a spirit of boldness, a spirit of steadfast confidence in your word, in your way, in your truth to flood this, this people right now. God, I ask that you would cause us to be those that delight in your truth, that love your way. God, would you fill us afresh with the love of the truth. And God, I do ask that you would marry that in this moment with like a spirit of tender compassion and bold conviction. God, that your love uh, is not um, at odds with your evaluations. 
God, so we don't have to receive the lie that to be loving means we, we apologize for things that you said are good and right. Right? Your love keeps us as humans from ingesting poison. And so we receive your love and we receive your strength this morning. Would you fill us afresh? Would you fill us?